If I were to ask you to describe the coronavirus using a single word, what would you say? Now, keep in mind we're in church, so. <laughs> Maybe some words that are not appropriate. You know, it is a, uh, it's a serious deal, actually, um, that we're going through. My brother's wife, uh, Jun Hee, she's a wonderful Korean lady with a unique name. Uh, lovely Christian lady. She uh, recently caught the coronavirus, and she is uh, uh, now in a medically induced coma um, on a respirator. And so, you know, this can be a very dangerous thing, and it's become a little bit personal in our family because of that. And uh, but what do you think it is about the virus itself, not, not even the disease that it causes, but the virus itself? that makes it such a dangerous enemy. You know, I think one of the things that makes it so dangerous is that it's invisible. Being invisible makes it especially dangerous. I mean, this world is filled with dangers, deadly dangers. Um, but you can see most of them. I mean, you can see a snake or a lion or a man with an axe. You see that, any of those things, you might go the other way, right? But um, it'd be nice if somehow the, the breath coming out of a person with a coronavirus might, I don't know, be purple or something like that, you know. <laughs> or, or maybe, what if people turned purple when they got the coronavirus? You know, that would be interesting, sort of like Violet from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you know. You're turning violet, Violet. You know, but that's what happens when you have an everlasting gobstopper, right? Um, but that's not how we catch the virus, and that's not what happens to people. You know, what makes it so dangerous is that we cannot see it. It's invisible. We know it's out there. We know it's in the world, but we don't know exactly where. We just know we don't want to be wherever it is. And yet it might be any number of places. And so uh, there's a corresponding spiritual reality to this coronavirus. There, there's another contagion in this world that's very much like the coronavirus. It is also invisible. It is deadly, and you certainly don't want to live where it is. Now, I'd invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. Not the Gospel of John, but the book of 1 John. Near the back of your Bible, 1 John, chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 15 through 17, and if you do have access to a Bible and you found 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, I'd ask you to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Just three simple verses. I'll read out loud, and, and you can read along in your Bible. Scripture says in the book of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would grant us insight and wisdom into understanding your word and that you might apply it to our hearts, that we might understand, that we might truly um, know how 
we can overcome this spiritual contagion that affects this entire world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, this spiritual contagion that has infected this world is the power of sin. And it, it's already infected you. And it, it's infected me. And it causes a great deal of harm. It can even kill you. And you might wonder, well, you know, how am I supposed to escape that? If it's already infected us, and not only just us individually, but it's everywhere. Sin is within us. Sin is outside of us. It's in our environment. Sin is everywhere. How in the world am I supposed to escape the sin that is all around us? Well, verse 16 tells us that there are three types of sin. And any sin that you could ever imagine falls into one of these three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. And so how in the world can we be free from these things if they're everywhere? I mean, which one of us can ever be free from desiring something that makes us feel good? Which one of us can ever be free from desiring something that we, we see? Or which one of us can ever truly be free from desiring something that makes us feel good about ourselves, sort of builds us up a little bit, become a little bit more prideful or arrogant even? You know, and so it's, it's really impossible for us to come to an understanding that we're going to completely escape even the effects of sin in this world. Not in this world. In the next world, yes. But in this world, the effects of sin are all around us, even within us. But here's the issue. The issue in this world is not whether we can escape the effects of sin, but there's a distinction between the effects of sin and giving into its power. Okay, it's not that we never feel anything or never see anything or never desire anything. It's whether we love those things. It's whether we set our hearts on those things. It's whether that the, those things and their power become something that grab hold of us and we begin to follow after those things instead of following after Christ. That is truly the issue. And so we will have to deal with sin as long as we live in this world. We will have to deal with temptation as long as we live in this world. But we do not have to yield ourselves to it. So that's the question. How in the world can we live in a sin-filled world and not love a sin-filled world? How can we live in a world filled with sin and not love the sin and the power that lies within it? Well, here's the answer in a word. It's all about your habitat. It's all about your habitat. You know what a habitat is, right? It's where a species of animal lives. You know, some, some frogs, for example, are meant for the tropics. And you can't put a frog that's meant for the tropics in the desert and expect that frog to live for very long. Some fish as you know, are freshwater fish. You can't put a freshwater fish in the salty ocean because it will grow sick and probably soon die. Lions and tigers and bears, oh, y'all are slow today, all need a certain type of habitat, don't they? If they're not in the right type of habitat, even if you were to take a lion and put him in a, in a cage, 
that lion may be able to live even for a very long time in that cage, but that lion may begin to lose some of its predatory instincts. That lion may, be able, may begin to lose some of its reproductive abilities. And, we, you know, we finally have begun to learn some of this. All kinds of animals need a certain type of habitat for them to thrive. It's the way God built those animals. And so here's the principle. Anytime that you remove something from the habitat designed for it, that something will either die or some of its natural instincts and functions will begin to lessen and become diminished. And that's true in the natural world, and it's true in the spiritual world as well. And I don't know if you've ever thought of Christians as a species, but I want you to consider this possibility for a moment. And I know that when we normally talk about species, we're talking about biology, and there's absolutely nothing biologically different from a Christian than someone that follows a different religion or, or someone that follows no religion at all. Biologically, all humans are the same. But spiritually, we Christians are a different species of humanity. Spiritually. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. A new creature. We might even say a new spiritual species. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. Think about that. Everyone in this world who's ever lived has to be either Jew or Greek. I mean, that's the way it is right now. We are either Jew or we are not Jew. We are either Jew or we are Gentile. That's it. But the Bible says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.11 says, In which there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Ephesians 2.15 says that by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man. That's who we are as Christians. We are one new man, thus establishing peace. And so if Christians are indeed a distinct spiritual species, then I believe that we have a distinct spiritual habitat. There is a place spiritually where we thrive, and if we remove ourselves from that place, we begin to die, we begin to get sick. And so if we want to escape the devastating effects of the spiritual virus that infects this world, then we need to get out of the wrong spiritual habitat and start to dwell in the right spiritual habitat. And one of the worst spiritual habitats that Christians sometimes dwell in is what I would call Egypt. Now, I'm not saying that geopolitical nation over there close to Israel is a bad place to be because many Christians live in the nation of Egypt. It's quite an amazing country. I've been there myself. But I'm talking about spiritual Egypt. And so let me explain. You know, there was a time many, many centuries ago when God's people, Israel, lived in physical 
Egypt. And when they were there, what happened to them? They became slaves. And so instead of serving the living God, they had to serve the enemy of God. Instead of becoming themselves a dwelling place for the true and living God, God's people made bricks to build houses for lesser gods. And so in that day, Egypt had all of the wealth of the nations. And when you thought about Egypt, you thought about money, and you thought about greed, and commercialism, and materialism, and pleasure. But all of those things actually became false gods that fought for the attention of God's people. And so when I talk about us as Christians living in the spiritual habitat of Egypt, I'm talking about this. Whether we put earthly pursuits in the place of God. Are we following after the materialism, the commercialism, the greed, and all of the flashiness of this world instead of following after the living God? And so I'm talking about, when I talk about living in spiritual Egypt, I'm talking about whether we fall into the trap of setting our hearts on the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. I'm not saying we can ever escape the effects of that in this world. I'm saying, do we set our hearts on it? Do we love those things? And so if you find yourself pursuing earthly pleasure and earthly wealth as a Christian, you're going to find yourself in just as much bondage as Israel found themselves so many years ago. Spiritual Egypt, that bondage to earthly desires, is not the habitat for Christians. As a Christian, you are a different spiritual species, and you do not belong in a place that only pursues earthly desires. So don't be a slave to another master. Don't make bricks with no straw for another master. God has given us a very simple command, which is this, come out. The same command he gave to Israel, come out. He gives to us today. And you might wonder, well, how in the world can I do that? How can I become free from the slavery in which I find myself? Because if I was to be real honest, I would say, you know, maybe in my bondage, I find myself attracted to, I find myself loving the temptations of the flesh and of the eyes and the pride, all of those things. And so how do I get out of that Egypt that I'm in right now? Well, you get out of your Egypt the same way Israel got out of theirs. The exact same way. The first thing, if you remember the story of Israel in Egypt, and you might want to go back and read this around Exodus chapter 12 and thereafter, one of the very first things that God had Israel do was to eat a meal. They ate a meal. And it wasn't just any kind of meal. But it was a very special meal. It was a meal that instituted a new tradition called Passover. And do you know what food was served at that first Passover meal? It was a lamb. The first thing that Israel did was they ate the lamb. When Israel ate the lamb, they gained the strength they needed 
to leave Egypt. Likewise, you need to eat the lamb. The lamb, of course, that you must eat is the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 53. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of, and I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. My question for you today is, are, are you partaking of Christ daily? Are you communing with him? Are you consuming his word? If not, if Jesus is not worth enough of our time, to spend with Him in prayer, if Jesus' Word is being pushed aside so that we can partake of the spiritual meals of this world, which are all sugar and no substance, if we try to satisfy the spiritual desires and thirsts of our hearts by drawing from wells that have no water instead of the spring that flows from life eternal, well, no wonder we're bound in Egypt. No wonder we're bound. We must... Read the Word of God in such a way that we allow the Spirit of God to speak through it to us. I would advise you, when you open up your Bible this week to read God's Word, take just a moment before doing so, and inviting the Spirit of God to speak to you. Yield yourself to what the Spirit of God may say through the Word of God. Jesus says to us today, consume the bread of life. Drink from the water of life. Come to me, Jesus says. It is by drinking Christ and consuming Christ daily that we gain the strength that we need to obey God's command. Come out. Come out of Egypt. Come out of bondage. There is a second thing that Israel did. Not only did they eat the lamb, but they also crossed the Red Sea. In other words, they crossed through certain death in order to reach life on the other side. And what does this mean for you and me? It means that we must, likewise, die to that former spiritual species that we were before we came to Christ. Romans 6:11 Paul puts it this way, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so if we will do these two very simple things, if we will do the same two things that Israel did as they escaped out of Egypt, if we will consume the lamb and if we will die to our old way of life, then we 
will escape the spiritual virus of Egypt, that bondage, and we will be able to dwell in our new habitat that God has given us. And so if Egypt and all of its effects are the wrong habitat for a spiritual species we call Christian, then what is the true habitat? What is the new habitat that God has given us where we can thrive? Well, let's see if we can figure this out. You see, Israel passed through the waters of death to stand alive on the other side. And I would ask you this question. Are there not waters that we pass through that likewise signify our death to old things and our life to new things? Yeah, it's the waters of baptism. That's what baptism signifies. It signifies our death to the old and our life to the new. And the second thing Israel did was they partook of the lamb. The lamb that was sacrificed and whose blood was a covering for them. Do we not partake of a similar meal that signifies consuming the lamb who was sacrificed on our behalf and whose blood was a covering for us? Yes, we do. It's the Lord's Supper. You see, baptism and the Lord's Supper signify these things. And there is one habitat which has an ordinance that signifies death and resurrection and has another ordinance that signifies ongoing sustenance, and that habitat is the church. The habitat that is native to us as a spiritual species called Christian is the church. The church is not a building. The church is is not a location. The church is not, in its essence, an organization. The church is a people who have passed through the waters of baptism and who partake of the Lord's Supper. The church is like a flock of sheep. It is like a school of fish. It is like a herd of cattle because the church is a gathering of Christians who share their lives together as a family. And collectively, we submit ourselves to the headship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The church is our natural habitat. And if you get away from the pack too long, if you get away from the gathering too long, you may find yourself enslaved in Egypt, or all alone in the wilderness with no one to rescue you in your time of trial. A Christian who is away from God's people grows weaker. It just happens. Why? Because you're out of your habitat if you're away from God's people. Your spiritual instincts will begin to wane. Your spiritual life will become stunted. You're not in your natural habitat. So now, as we begin to reestablish ourselves as the body of Christ, as we begin our journey from being the church scattered to becoming again the church gathered, 
I believe the Lord is calling you to consider a crucial question. Have you, in this absence of being able to gather with God's people, have you picked up practices that you need to leave behind? Have you been living in Egypt? Have you been living in bondage to the things of this world? And if so, it's time for you to re-enter your natural habitat as a Christian. It's time for you to rededicate yourself not only to God, but also to God's people of which you are a member. It can begin today if you'll do those two things we talked about. Die to self and consume Christ.